Hello, Chal Ravens here, producer of Navara FM and ACFM. You probably won't recognise my voice, but if you're deeply embedded in the Navara Media Cinematic Universe, then you'll definitely recognise our guest host today, Keir Milburn, who makes the leap from his podcast ACFM for a crossover episode about one of his specialist subjects. If you're an ACFM regular, you'll know that podcast as the home of the weird left on Navara, a show about left-wing politics, culture, music, and experiences of collective joy. And on top of Keir's capacious knowledge of politics, philosophy, and punk rock, he's also an experienced local guide to the city of Leeds, and not just the history you'll see in the local museum. At the end of June, I escaped London to travel up to his adopted city, where he's lived for over 30 years since arriving as a squatter from Swansea in 1989. And we went for a walk around this historic epicentre of industry, trade and capital. Because, of course, the history of class struggle is not just an abstract thing. It happened on the streets and outside the factories, and it was led by real people whose victories were often slow and far from inevitable. So on our walk, Keir mapped out a working-class history that's as much about violence as it is about solidarity. A history that spans chartists and communists, unionists and scabs, child labourers and rebellious servants, and takes us right up to the present day and the future of Leeds as a typical post-industrial city in a post-crash world. Just to be clear that this isn't your average local history audio guide, we've given it the ACFM touch with a selection of clips from some of Leeds' finest bands. Answers at the end, and listen out for a cameo from our very own James Butler and Navara's man in the north, Craig Gent. Keir met me at the train station, and we started the walk at City Square, surrounded by traffic and looking up at the statue of the Black Prince. So I'm going to take you on a version of a, of a sort of history walk that I did a couple of times around 10 years ago. In fact, the first time we did it was in 2009. It was a group of friends that I'd been doing politics with for years, and me, we'd been doing a few antics. Uh, we did a spoof version of the, of the local paper, the Yorkshire Evening Post. Our version was called the Yorkshire Evening Pest, of course which we used to give out over there by the train station at rush hour basically and we decided to to do a sort of tour of Leeds at that point in particular a sort of tour of like the working class history and the sort of class struggle history because we thought it'd been excised out of the out of the story that Leeds told itself and so like 2008 is a big financial crisis and before 2008 Leeds I think it had like it was something ridiculous, like 50% of the cranes in Europe were in Leeds or something. It was a really massive building boom, and they were really keen on building really big buildings. In 2008, like, loads of those developments fell apart. They just collapsed, basically. The buildings didn't collapse, they never got built. Um, and so Leeds, for like the last decade, has had like, big gaps in spaces where these buildings would be, like sort of ghost buildings, uh, you know, gaps in the skyline. Uh, there was going to be, the spiracle was going to be built one point which is going to be the biggest residential building in Europe we'll go past I'm going to take you past the the the, the still empty well it's got a, a scrap car park on it still empty space where the spiracle is going to be built we're just in city square here which is right near the train station and you can have a look over there there's a little bit of building work going there's a there's a gap there that was going to be a big building it never it never happened basically 
Um, and so we thought, right, okay, so there's been this sort of idea of what will what Leeds is going to look like. It's stalled. Let's have another think about like what Leeds could look like if it was developed under a different sort of logic, basically. And to do that, we thought, well, what's missing from the story that gets told about Leeds? And let's fill that story in and then see what the what the logic would have been. So that was like a decade ago. And to be honest, if you walk, when we walk around Leeds now, you'll see there's quite a lot of building work going on. There's been a bit of a building boom again. There's quite a few of those spaces are getting filled in, although a lot shorter buildings than, than were planned at the time. But uh, this is another good time for you to visit Leeds and like have do the, redo this same process because even though there's building work going on now, the pandemic is putting a lot of the model of urban development into doubt. Like Leeds has, Leeds, development of Leeds for a couple of decades has been driven by let's develop the city centre around rising real estate prices. But because of COVID, because of the pandemic, uh, you know, retail in the city centre is in real crisis. Fact, high streets are all around the country just in crisis. What are we going to use them for? Because there's going to be no retail because of the take up of online retail. Basically, house prices are rocketing at the moment. But commercial rents, i.e. office rents, are in real trouble because companies are obviously downsizing offices, thinking, hang on, we can save a bit of money here and get the people to work from home part of the week and then perhaps rotate office hours, etc., etc. So there's now another, another stall or potential stall in development of Leeds and other cities because what are you going to use city centres for? Why are people going to come into them if they're not going to go shopping or go to work? You know, what are we going to do with all of the, of the high streets? What are we going to do with all these buildings, basically? And so now is a good time to sort of rehearse that walk and have another... Have another iteration of thinking about what Leeds could be like if if we if we had a different logic driving that development. How different do you think Leeds is to other cities in the north of England in all of the, that regard in terms of development and recent changes? Well so Leeds is a, is a sort of it's an, it's an odd city there's a couple of different things about it. Leeds is these days is a sort of it's a legal centre so legal insurance centre and a bit of finance basically a little bit of manufacturing, a lot of retail employment, these sorts of things. In, in like 1990, it had this plan. Uh, I know I know a nice city called Barcelona. Let's be the Barcelona of the North. Uh, it wasn't uh, an original idea. Every other city <laughs> had that idea. And sort of Manchester did it better. And Leeds has got a very big uh, inferiority complex on its shoulder about Manchester in terms of football, music <laughs> and these sorts of things. Um, and the other thing about Leeds is what we're we're in City Square now. We get, if we just face there's, there's the Queen's Hotel, a nice grand hotel, faded glory. Behind that's a train station. There's a train line that runs right through the centre of Leeds. It goes so the train station is either in the centre of Leeds or at the the, the southern end of the city centre. Depends on on, on how you want to think about it. Most of it, what most of what people think of the city centre is to the north of the train station, and that's because. Leeds is split into two. There's a there's a train line. There's a uh, uh, the river. The river air runs alongside the train line at this point, and the canal, the Leeds Liverpool Canal, or the first bit of it, runs along there. I mean, that's part of the reason Leeds is here because of those transport links, in particular the canal when the canal developed. That's when the, the development at Leeds took off. But the the industrial area is to the south of the or the old industrial area is to the south of the river. So it, the natural the natural way Leeds would have developed would be that you would develop the city outwards but it's, it's found it very difficult to develop outwards because it's a real barrier, basically. It's a barrier, the river, the, the train station and the canal to development south, or in fact, to any footfall south. Um, and so it had a tall buildings policy. It's got one of the, it's got more tall buildings than, than a city of its, a normal city of its size. Um, 
and that's because they tried to develop upwards and that was what they had a tall buildings policy and loads of those tall buildings got cancelled after the financial crisis it's a little bit noisy here i think you'll agree uh, in city square this is going to be pedestrianized plans to pedestrianize this at some point in an, over the next few years and that'd be great because the other thing that really constricts Leeds is um, it's absolutely choked with traffic. It's the biggest city in Western Europe not to have an integrated transport system, so not to have a tram or a metro, you know, anything like that, basically. There's been like series after series of plans to have guided trams and these sorts of things, and they've been cancelled because central government basically withdrew the money under both New Labour and the Tories. Um, and so that's the big problem. That's, those are the problems constricting, constricting leads. We're just walking over a bridge. Oh, in fact, let's have a little stop here, actually. It's quite a nice picture. You can see a really, a, a lo really long, long bridge, but the river comes underneath. These are fact tributaries that run right underneath Leeds. In fact, you can do a walk from north, from the north of Leeds, from a place called Meanwood. You can get into a, into this beck by the by uh, the Primrose Pub, if anyone's from Leeds. And you can walk underneath the city. Sometimes it's in the channel. Sometimes it's underneath, and you can follow it all the way down until just just about. You can just about where you can see it there. You get to this point here. You can see this bridge. But you can't get to the bridge so you have to go back into town then you come out of that walk via a manhole cover in a traffic island in the middle of loads of traffic so when people see you coming out of this manhole cover uh, you look uh, everyone looks at you as though you're doing something really illicit so we've just come through uh, the dark arches we're out we've just come to the canal actually this is the start of the, the leeds liverpool canal beyond this canal is where the the old industrial area starts to the west of Leeds there's sort of hills rising up to the Pennines which go up over to, to Manchester and then to the east it's like flat it's flat all the way down to Hull basically what do you have up on hills you have sheep wool and down in the flatlands you have like grain and so Leeds was like a market town and then when the early industrial revolution started it became a sort of manufacturing center for wool and flax and things like that and in fact, there's coal just to the south of Leeds. In fact, there were mines quite close into in the city centre coal mine. So that provides the coal for when we get to steam engines, that sort of age. But Leeds took off when the canals got built, basically. And the early part of Leeds, it was run by water power. And we're going to walk into an area called Holbeck. And a beck is like a small stream. So the early sort of mills were actually driven by water power by the beck. So we're just going to walk into an area which is these days called Holbeck Urban Village. So Holbeck proper, which is a, 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 big, a big area which has got a large amount of housing, quite a lot of it knocked down now, called back-to-back -back housing. Big cholera epidemics in the 1840s because of insanitary conditions. Um, although when I first moved to Leeds, I, I lived in one of those back-to-backs. And I am cholera-free. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, um, in fact, one of the, store, one of the things we wanted to, wanted to say was, you know, we're going to go visit some of these, some, some quite elaborate mills built by these sort of uh, enlightened entrepreneurs. But you can't look at these mills, these nice ornate mills, without putting them together with the back-to-backs and, like, you know, the people who died of cholera, etc. Around about a decade ago, they tried to rebrand the old industrial area into Holbeck Urban Village and develop it. It sort of semi-successfully. 
So they invented this term, Holbeck Urban Village, and, and it was a strange sort of development because it got linked to a very particular story. In fact, if at the time, if you went to the Holbeck Urban Village website, you could download a walking tour, a little bit like this one, an MP3 narrated by John Thorpe, who at the time was the lead civic architect. And it would take you around some of the buildings we're going to go around. But we, when we listened to it and did that walk, we thought, hang on, this is like, this is a story where like you know this just the story of Leeds is reduced and the story of Holbeck is just reduced to these to these sort of thrusting enlightened entrepreneurs as though like the social problems of Leeds they seem to come from nowhere and they were solved by these enlightened entrepreneurs and then when we looked at like what the actual development model for Leeds was we thought hang on it's a little bit similar isn't it so the development model for Leeds especially at that point was developer-led development five big developers in Leeds and basically the council would it would pump prime development. Development was, was, was led by whatever those developers want to do, basically. And we will, as a council, we will, we will give, you, give you land for virtually nothing or for free. We will sort of, you know, invest in an area to make it an attractive place to build, etc. Uh, and so, you know, we thought that that wasn't going to work. There were some other thing, people missing who, who might want to develop it in a different way, actually the people of Leeds. And in fact, it proved to be that way. You can't quite see it from here, but once you come into the train station and if you look sort of west, you can see like a huge amount of, of building and it's all built so that you can see it from the train station uh, to attract uh, the likes, these, these, these um, southerners like yourself from up from London to um, either live here or to commute to London or something like that. It was all based on, on an, an inner city, the idea of inner city living. Loads of them are left empty. Something like 80% of the new apartments built at that time were buy to let so people were buying them to let out uh, and so the needs of, of the people of Leeds weren't, weren't being met and we thought well you know perhaps that's linked to the stories being told about Leeds perhaps actually what we need to understand is that there are you know people with different interests in Leeds there are different classes in Leeds and in fact they've conflicted at, at different times and at certain times some have held more power than others and that's the, dictated the way that development has gone and so we wanted to rectify that and redo this walk but add a class struggle element. So we're just on Globe Road, just outside Tower Works, which is one of these, the first of these famous mills, built between 1864 and, 18, and 1866. It's called Tower Works because it's got three prominent towers. They're the only bits that are left of the original buildings. The towers are actually chimneys, and they were designed to sort of extract the dust out of the mills. But they're very ornate, or at least two of them are really ornate. They're based on Italian towers. So the tallest tower is, is based on Giotto's Campinelle, uh, a bell tower in Florence and the smaller ornate tower is based on the Lamberti tower in Verona it's interesting to sort of think about why that we have these sort of eccentric ornamentation on and not just this sort of instrumental um, uh, money money pinching sort of idea let's walk over to Temple Mill which is an even more impressive I just wanted to show you the towers So we've just come up to Temple Works, which is one of my favourite buildings in Leeds. We stood outside the office building, actually, and I'll describe it for you. There's six sort of ornate towers with, with big windows in front of them, and it's Egyptian, sort of Egyptological uh, uh, stylings all over it. Circles surrounded by 
serpents with big sort of feathered images. It looks fantastic, basically. And then there's all sort of hieroglyphics on the, on the sort of lintel on the top of that building. And next to it is the mill, the, the mill, which is also, you can't quite see, it's got a lot of covering over it because it's not in a great state of repair, but it's similarly, it's got um, 18 pillars that go across the front in a sort of Egyptian sort of style. It's magnificent. So the office building is based on the Temple of Horus at Edfu at Egypt. What you can't see in the top is on the, on the mill. When this mill was built, the, the actual mill building rather than the, the, the office that we're in front of, which is the side of the mill building. When it was built, it was the biggest single room in Europe, which probably means it was the biggest single room in the world, wasn't it? And it was made for flax manufacture. And on top of it, you can't quite see it, but there are um, 60 conical glass skylights like 14 feet across 10 feet sort of high to the pinnacle up there designed to let lots of light into the into the into the factory it also when it was built it had it had a grass roof so it had grass on the roof and that apparently that kept it just the right temperature and moisture that kept the mill the right temperature and moisture to work with flax so it had grass on the top and they used to have sheep up there to graze the grass to keep the grass down in fact they had a sheep lifter on the back to get the sheep the sheep up in, in the period before that, you have the, the enclosures where common land and the rights to graze or to collect firewood and these sort of things from common land were removed, which meant that that, um, that people couldn't subsist on, on the land anymore. In fact, in, in Capital, Marx talks about the, this great advance of sheep coming to us, as though there's an invasion of sheep sweeping across Europe, <laughs> or across, across Britain, driving humans before it into the cities. There is a story that the sheep got removed because one of the sheep fell through one of the conical skylights and killed a worker beneath. I think that's probably an apocryphal tale, right? I'm not really sure if that's true. Anyway, look, this is just an amazing frontage and it's an amazing building. And when you put it next to the, all of these sort of ornate Italianate towers built, um, built roughly about the same time, like what's going on? Why are, they, why are entrepreneurs of that time so keen to add all of these stylings? I think, I mean, obviously, I don't know the exact answer, but I think it's probably something to do with the idea that this is that this is new money, right? These are people who are getting rich by through through industrialization. They're not aristocracy, and this is the period where the aristocracy is getting replaced by the new, well, the bourgeoisie, as they were called at the time. Um, the Temple Works is built built by the Marshall family by John Marshall, and they were keen on Egyptology, apparently. But they, they, this is a period when when people who were wealthy, particularly rising wealth used to go on a grand tour of Europe and perhaps that would go into Egypt. You do a grand tour and you take in the sights and you become a civilized person, which would distinguish you from the oiks that live up in, up in, up in Holbeck. I mean, it's probably something also to do with the idea of like, if you have new money, you want to root that money. Money means power, right? And this is the rising power. You want to root that power in some sort of sense of an eternal civilization such as Egypt, such as, you know, such as ancient Rome and, and, and you know, um, the, the great Italian cities. I think it must be something like that, basically. The Temple of Horus is, Horus is where we get the, the phrase hours from, basically. It's about time, related to time. And of course, from the end of the 18th century, anyway, this is the time when Leeds is expanding massively and those people are coming, the population is expanding, those people are coming from agricultural areas and they will not have an idea of hours. That was invented for industrial, for factory work, basically. You had a completely different idea of time back then. You had an idea of time which was task-based. How long are you going to be away from work for? I'm, I'm just going, I'm be a pissing while because I'm going for a, 
piss. Presumably that is a lot shorter than a shitty while because that would take a lot longer. But it would be task-based. <laughs> then all of a sudden you have, to, you have to follow a clock and it is hours and minutes and you have to be uh, at work at a particular time and you're going to be, uh, you know, you could lose your job if you're not there and you're going to work there, not until it goes dark, which is what it would be before, but you're going to work there until um, knocking off time. And you probably, when it, this mill first opens, it'd be 16 hours. Let's just go to the mill next door, which is called Marshall's Mill. And we're going to talk about how people try to resist working that long. So we've just come into the yard of Marshall's Mill, which is next door to Temple Works. And in fact, they were both built by John Marshall. Uh, the Marshall family were a big, big rising industrial family uh, in Leeds. This is the second Marshall's Mill. The first one was a little bit closer to, to the Beck. The Beck will be a, it's a small river, whole Beck in fact. And so it was driven by water power. And then this was the second mill, which was built between 1791 and 1792 and it was built around steam power presumably they had to move the last the other one because it kept flooding so it was this is a big sort of six six story mill actually that's only five isn't it that's only five <laughs> this is a big five story mill <laughs> um 2000 factory workers and this is an interesting example actually of, of this idea that um if, if we went to the city to Leeds city museum later the last time I went in there, there was very little mention of and any of the sort of like class struggle stories I'm going to tell in a moment. But there's lots on people like Marshall, on Thomas Harding and that sort of sort of thing. And the story is of these enlightened, these enlightened um, entrepreneurs, basically, or inventors that, that reshape Britain. And so, yeah, it's like the social problems that arise, they're nothing to do with these these mills and the, uh, how did they get solved well because we had these enlightened liberal entrepreneurs who came up with the solutions i mean john marshall actually did build a school in holbeck and he used to pick children out of the uh, of the mill promising children out who worked in the mill out to go and have education because you've got to remember that um you know this is the time of child labor child labor was common in fact there's a there's a story of there's one report of a nine-year-old child at Marshall's Mill being brought out into this yard here, uh, tied to a post and be beaten with straps until they lost consciousness. That's how discipline was kept, basically. That sounds harsh, right? He's sort of seen as like this socially responsible uh, employer of the, of the time. <laughs> uh, but one thing he was really against was giving up his power. Like, this is new power. They weren't going to give up his power. So Marshall, John Marshall, was really fanatically against factory legislation, which would limit the working day. It wasn't just seen as like, oh, I'll reduce, it will increase costs and reduce profits. It was seen as social power. It was seen as the working class is rising. If they have less work, that will give them more time to organize. It really was seen in that way. And, you know, the, so the struggle for the, for the eight-hour day was seen as, you know, it was like a transitionary thing. We'll get this, then we'll get more, which is why they, the factory owners such as John Marshall resisted it so, so vehemently. Which is like, that's what's missing from the story of, of Leeds. Like, who, who gets to decide how it's developed? Who decides what, what uses the city's built to? I want to take us to an event that happens in, in this yard in 1842. It's, so we've got the struggle for the eight-hour day, but we've also got the struggle for the vote, Chartism. 1842 is the second wave of, of, of Chartism. So the, the Charter is something that gets drawn up, which so right, right, rights of working men to vote, 
MP getting paid, all of these things, all of which have got granted over the years, apart from the annual parliament one, which has never, never come about. Probably not a good idea. God, a constant electioneering would be awful. <laughs> so in 1842, this is the second time that, that a huge petition has been, has been pulled together. Uh, this huge mobilisation to get a petition. They've got 3.5 million signatures on this petition, which is a huge proportion of, of the population of, of Britain. It's handed into Parliament, and once again, for the second time, Parliament throws it out, basically. Only the property are allowed to, to vote at, at this time. In 1842, though, when the Parliament checks out the, the Charter, it just sparks a, a, a series of strikes around England, particularly in the north of England. The strikes are demanding the Charter, but they're also demanding the 10-hour day. Later, it'll be the 8-hour day, but the 10-hour day. These strikes are called plug riots because what would happen would be that if the workers went on strike, they would pull the plugs out of the steam engine so that the machinery would come to a halt and they couldn't, couldn't run. But what would also happen would be that workers would gather around factories not on strike, break in, pull the plugs and pull them out onto, onto strike. And that's what happens here. So in August 1842, a large crowd... About 10,000 strong gather up in, uh, in Holbeck and Hunslet, which is just where the, where the workers live. March down the road to the, to the mills here, and I've got a little contemporaneous account, which I'll read out, actually. Why embellish a good story when it's all here in black and white? Around 10,000 marched down from Holbeck and broke into Marshall's Mill. They stopped the engines at Benyon's Mill. From there, they proceeded to the shops of Mails and Marsh, where a number entered by the watchhouse door and opened the large gates. Immediately the yard was filled, the engine stopped, the bell rung and the men were turning out. The mob began to leave the yard. At this instant, Mr Reed, Chief Constable, rode into the yard amongst them. He was quickly dismounted, but beat off the mob with his stick. A general rush was made to the gates and when the greater part had, had effected their exit, a large body of police arrived, closed the gates and captured a number of prisoners. The people, seeing only a few policemen, made an attack upon them with sticks, bludgeons and stones, but were eventually compelled to fall back without gaining possession of the yard. A volley of stones poured upon the police, which was terrific for a short time. When the military arrived, they were speedily dispersed up the road and across the fields in all direction. The masses, who were of our own population, expressed freely and openly and loudly the sympathy with the rioters. About four o'clock the riot act was read and two pieces of artillery were paraded through Holbeck. Between 30 and 40 prisoners were taken, but only so far as we could gather on tri trifling charges. So it's the last bit, is that they basically took two, two pits of artillery up to Holbeck, to the, where the workers lived, and threatened to fire on the, on the houses there unless they dispersed. From the Annals and History of Leeds, August 1842. A special commission sat at York to try the rioters. The Leeds rioters were tried on the 3rd of September. Most of the prisoners were found guilty and sentenced to terms of imprisonment varying from 18 months downwards. The military refrained at Leeds from firing upon the mob. Thus ended the Chartist riots at Leeds, an event that will long be remembered from the alarm it excited. Several persons received wounds, but no lives were lost, and considering the excitement, no very serious damage was done to property. The streets were cleared early in the evening, and all public houses forced to close at eight o'clock. Two thousand persons suffered imprisonment for being concerned in the riots in the county of York. Mr Fergus O'Connor, Mr Julian Harney, and other Chartist leaders 
were convicted after long and expensive trials of promoting riots, but ultimately, in June 1843, succeeded in obtaining an arrest of judgment in the court of the Queen's Bench. From that account, you can tell that they came to Marshall's Mill first. What was the enmity with Marshall's Mill? And you can actually, it's a nice story that, you can take that back 10 years to John Marshall's son, John Marshall Jr., who got elected for one, one of the t- as one of the two MPs for Leeds in 1832. Right, so this is the first election since the 1832 Reform Act, which has spread spread voting rights to the property classes but not to the working men so that's when you know the disgruntlement acted as a spur to the to the, to the chartist movement so in 1832 there was this election which was really a dirty dirty uh, a dirty election campaign the main issue wasn't actually the charter at that point it was a 10-hour day and the opposition leader that, that john marshall jr was uh, in competition with was the leader of the 10-hour day movement in leeds marshall campaigned against reducing working hours and to counter the movement for the 10-hour day, he made all of his 2,000 workers come out into this yard here to line up. He said, I know you're not allowed to vote, but I want you to pledge. If you were allowed to vote, you would vote for me. Anybody who won't pledge that gets fired. <laughs> he was hated. Basically, when he won the election, they burnt effigies of him in the streets. So he, was, he might have seen being liberal, but he, he was hated at this point, basically. Let's leave that here. We're going to walk up to Holbeck proper where the, where the workers live. So we've just walked up to Holbeck proper. In fact, we're on Holbeck Moor. Uh, and Holbeck proper, it, it, you can tell it's, a, it's, a, it's separated from Holbeck Urban Village. It's separated by a lot of land which isn't used anymore, but you can definitely tell that this was the more residential area and that was the industrial area. We can see some of the back-to-backs which are still exi- in existence. Just the other side of the park, uh, quite a lot of them have been knocked down these days. And we come up to Holbeck more because there's a nice story here. In fact, 75 years ago this year, an event called the Battle of Holbeck Moor took place. And it was when 30,000 loiners, as people from Leeds are called, turned out to defeat Oswald Mosley, one of his first big defeats. The story goes something like this. So Holbeck Moor is quite a big open space. It used to be bigger than this. And it's, been, it's played a sort of role in civic history in Leeds. It's one of the places where, where, where rallies used to happen. They don't happen here anymore for a long time, but they were traditionally held up here some significant suffragette rallies on, on Holbeck Moor, for instance. But in 1936, this was going to be the destination, or was the destination, for uh, a large group of a 1,000 fascists from the British Union of Fascists, led by Os- Oswald Mosley. So Mosley was a, was a Labour MP, but he became a fascist inspired by Mussolini, set of the British Union of Fascists. And the, the way that they used to operate, the way they tried to build would be to do what the far right are still doing. They do provocative walks through areas where they're not welcome. So Mosley had looked at, at Leeds and thought we should do a walk through an area called the Leylands. Uh, Leylands doesn't really exist anymore. It's, it's, it's a, a close to the city centre, just to the north of the city centre. But that was where the Jewish community existed at that point. It was very. It was a, Leeds has got one of the bigger Jewish communities, but the biggest Jewish community outside London and Manchester is in, in Leeds. And um, 
It was a very poor area. It was a centre of, uh, of tailoring uh, uh, and there were big tailoring sweatshops. area of quite concentrated organisation. In fact, I could tell you about this guy, Tom Maguire, who's going to come up in the story we're going to, do, to talk about later. Tom Maguire, um, he was sort of a, 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 an organiser and, and a socialist who did a lot of organising amongst the tailors in, in Leylands. And Mosley thought that was a good area to march in because there'd been some, some anti-Jewish tension or tensions between the Jewish community in some parts of the white community. I don't think that would have been a term that was used back then. Mosley declares he's going to walk through Leylands uh, and in the run-up to that, there's lots of anti-Jewish graffiti put up around the city centre. The, the authorities in the city realise it's going to be a big battle at Leyland, so they ban him from marching from Leyland, so he has to, he says he's going to come up to Holbeck Moor. So, a uh, thousand fascists line up in uh, on the hedgerow, one of the main streets in Leeds, and they march up to Holbeck Moor, uh, march up this road that's facing us now that goes into the city centre. When they get up here, they have a little look, they realise that there's 30,000 people waving red flags and singing the red flag facing them. Now, he thought that Leylands was an area he could go in and provoke. Holbeck would be an area which would be receptive to him. But Holbeck was like it was a stronghold of union organisation, a stronghold of the Labour Party and a stronghold of the Communist Party. The Labour Party national leadership declared a, a moratorium or, or, or no organising around anti-fascism around the country. I'm sure there were lots of uh, a lot, a lot Labour Party members who sort of joined in the organising, but it was led officially and it was led in actual fact by the communist party who would basically go and run pubs to get people out knocking on all the doors to get people out so 30,000 people uh, were, were lined up in this park here which would fill this park it's a big number the police are just in front of of Mosley and they sort of form a wedge to get into the sound van that Mosley's got with him Mosley sets up on the sound van and starts to, to, to make it a, a speech at first um, the crowd drowns him out by singing the red flag really loud. But uh, they don't think that's enough, and they start charging towards the towards the sound van. Stones get thrown. Mosley gets hit by a stone and goes down, goes down off the off the van. And basically, the fascists try to beat a, a hasty re retreat, an orderly retreat back into the city centre. Uh, unfortunately for them, there was a large group of Communist Party members or union work, uh, workers who'd been organised by the Communist Party hiding behind a hoarding just down the road to, if you look back towards the, the city centre that way. So when the, when the fascists were fleeing down that way, they sprang the trap, jumped out and heavily stunned the fascists, broke up their ranks uh, and dispersed them. So it was a rout. And in fact, it was the... It was a week or two before the, the much more famous Battle of Cable Street. And the, those two between them, the Battle of Holbeck Moor and the Battle of Cable Street, had a real significant role to play in defeating the British Union of Fascists. Fascist meeting disorder. Three men in court. Two fined and one sent to jail. From our correspondent. Leeds, Tuesday. Cases against three men arising out of disturbances at a fascist demonstration at Leeds on Sunday, when Sir Oswald Mosley and many of his followers were injured, were heard at Leeds Police Court today. John Hodgson, 19, warehouseman of Blackball Street, Leeds, and Herbert Broxup, 28, cloth finisher of Paradise Place, Leeds, 
were each fined 40 shillings and bound for over 12 months for disorderly conduct. And John William Crook, 27, of Leopold Terrace, Leeds, was bound over for 12 months for disorderly conduct and sentenced to six weeks imprisonment in the 2nd Division for assault. Detective Inspector Murgatroyd said that on Sunday afternoon he saw thousands of people on Holbeck Moor, where Sir Oswald Mosley was addressing a demonstration. The crowd in front of the speaker was greatly excited. He saw Hodgson throw a stone in the direction of Sir Oswald. It went close to the head of a policeman and passed Sir Oswald. A witness took Hodgson away. Shortly afterwards, when the fascist body was moving from the moor, he saw Broxup throwing a stone into the midst of the fascists, shouting, Let them have it, lads. In reply to the magistrate, a witness said that part of the crowd was very excited. Some of them were shouting, Down with the fascists. Hodgson, in evidence, said that he was not a member of any political party. Somebody struck a man next to him with a cornet, and the cornet also struck him. Somebody behind him put a stone into his hand, and he threw it in the direction of the speaker because he was provoked by what the speaker was saying. Broxup, in evidence, said one of the black shirts struck his friend on the back of the head with a bugle, and he tried to retaliate, but could not do so because of the crowd. So he picked up two stones to throw at the black shirt with the bugle. Finding Hodgson and Broxup guilty, the magistrate said, It is not the custom in this country to throw stones at people with whose opinions you disagree. And in this city, it is not going to be tolerated at all. So let's set the scene for 1936. You've got the Spanish Civil War going on. And the Spanish Civil War, so there's people from Leeds going over to fight uh, against the fascists there. This would be seen exactly the same as, as going over there to fight the, the phalangists. They won the, the Spanish Civil War and they, only, they won it for one reason only. It's because they had the support of Hitler and Mussolini and the Western powers wouldn't support the Republican forces mm. because there was a social revolution going on there. Uh, it's a little bit like that here, you know, it's a little mm. bit that, that thing here. I don't know exactly why the, the, the Labour leadership were... We're, we're saying this, there should be no anti-fascist work, but I imagine it would be a similar sort of logic of, you know, let's keep out of it, let's not, it's not our fight, let's take the parliamentary route. But of course, they'd taken a parliamentary route in Spain and they were forced into taking more serious action because uh, that was not respected. I mean, it's, it's hard to take us back into that time in the 1930s and before that. Yeah, like, it's fair to say that very few people thought that capitalism would continue to exist and there was this, this battle, I mean, you know, fascism arises, there's obviously all sorts of precursors for fascism, but fascism arises as a response to the Russian Revolution and the, the prospect of a communist revolution sweeping Europe. So, yeah, it's, it's hard for us to put ourselves back into that time uh, or, or not to read that time for our own present lenses now where we see capitalism as this eternal social system. That just basically wasn't how it was seen back then. And so it was seen about, well, how is capitalism going to end? Will it be through... A, a Russian Revolution model? Would it be through a, a, a social democratic model where you, where you get elected to power, then you change things fundamentally? They were probably two, the two sides of the workers' movement at that point. There were obviously very large syndicalist movements which would thought that you'd basically bring 
what would happen would there be one great strike there'd be a big strike and that would bring capitalism down or, or you know preempt bringing capitalism down there was a 1926 general strike which people thought was the precursor to that there's a bit, a bit of disturbance in the center of leeds around that there were basically trams running in the center of leeds people gathered around they, they stopped those trams running and they broke the windows of the trams and basically enforced that strike that way, do you know what I mean? And, and students from the university would be driving those trams, probably. In a way, we're doing this walk out of chronological order, but you have to put, it, put them in as like a continuous uh, knowledge of these, these cycles of upsurges of struggle. And what goes around that is obviously people just getting on with their lives, but like constant organising and constant low-level struggle around the level of wages etc and only every now and then it it peaks up into these sort of explosions in which battle over social power comes to the fore and like you know that's the thing that raises the well what should what should leads look like what should happen here etc mm. right i think let's take a little break now and we're gonna we're gonna go back into the city center and we're gonna walk back out the city center in a different direction In the city centre now, very nice little Georgian Square called Park Square. But we're outside uh, number eight Park Square, um, which is a scene of a historical incident back in 1865. Park Square is that sort of unusual. This is the only sort of Georgian Square. I described this scene. There's a sort of a nice little park, classic sort of Georgian little park, and the houses are, 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 are built around it. These were. These were sort of the luxury houses for the rising wealthy at the time. They're all legal offices now and chambers and so forth. When it was built, it was part of a, of a wider estate, the Park Estate. And this was for the, the rising wealthy who, who were away to the north of the city centre, away from the sort of industrial area and the smog or whatever that would come from that, but close enough to be uh, in, in and amongst the, the goings-on. And so by 1865, it was still a place where wealthy people lived. And in number eight, Park Square uh, was occupied by a Mr. Chorley, who was a local magistrate. He had a, he had a cook called Elizabeth Stafford. And he accused Elizabeth Stafford of stealing two pounds of dripping. Dripping, the dripping that the fat would come up, which come off your sort of your Sunday um, beef roast. She actually went and sold that to, to a friend of hers. I don't think she got very much money. And uh, Elizabeth Stafford's version of the story was, look, this is the one of the perks of the job, right? You get jobs, you get paid a certain amount, and then there are perks, you know, so that it was common that people could get the end of candles and melt them down to form a new candlelight. Chorley saw it the other way, and, and because he was a local magistrate and a big wig, he got her up in court for it, and she got sentenced to a month in jail for, for stealing, and I'm doing air, air quotes now, stealing uh, two pounds of, of dripping. This didn't go down well in Leeds at all, basically. People were outraged. Basically, one, of, one of them is the harshness of, of the prison sentence, a month in Armley Jail, uh, which was a, a hard place to go, it still is. But also because it was just such an obvious class bias to the law. The law was the law of the rich, basically. And it, was, it was quite obvious to do that. As the month imprisonment went on, Mr. Chorley found he couldn't get out leave the house. When he left the house, he was followed around by people who would chant at him. They'd chant, dripping 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 or another chant apparently was um how's the fat lad 
and he'd be followed around by people shouting at him whenever he left the house. Elizabeth Stafford, she's up at Armley Jail. Armley Jail, we can't see it from here, but at the time you would have been able to see it, I think. It's up on the uh, up on the on a hill, so it's visible from most of Leeds. Built 1847, it sits there in order to be visible from the whole of Leeds. It's your warning sign. The day comes for Miss Stafford to be released, and by 9 a.m. in the morning, the, the the morning of her release, there's 10 to 12,000 people gathered outside Army Jail to greet her. She comes out. The authorities had been a bit sneaky. They'd snuck her out early, and she was taken out to York, out of the out of the town. Uh, and people sort of realised that they weren't going to have their moment of glory to welcome uh, welcome this woman out. So they went back into town. They came back into town. A thousand people are gathered in this square outside Eight Park Place and proceed to smash Mr. Chorley's windows, <laughs> basically. The day goes on. People come out from their lunch breaks and they start to gather. And bigger and bigger crowds start to gather outside uh, Park Place. The house is surrounded by police and people start to push to try and get in. And then at a certain point, the police officer in charge decides to clear the square and charges the crowd. And one man is trampled to death in the sort of melee that follows. That, that's basically it. There's a bit of disorder in the town after that. But it just shows uh, it's an indication of the level of, of, of antagonism. This wasn't a place in which class didn't exist. It, was, it, was, it existed, it structured how the city was run, and it was keenly felt the exercise of such obvious uh, iniquities such as being sent to jail for two pounds of dripping, that was all that would be needed to spark off a moment of intense class antagonism. The history books from every age have the same words written on every page, always starting with revolution, always ending with capitulation. So we're just at Leeds Town Hall, just outside it, uh, and we've come here to tell the story of perhaps one of the most influential uh, event that's taken place in Leeds. That's quite a claim, isn't it? But basically the most influential event in this sort of working class history sense, uh, which takes place in 1819. It's the, the gas workers strike of 1890. And it's to do with the struggle for the eight hour day. When Marshall's Mill first get built, the working day is like 16 hours. That gets brought down to 12 hours. We talked earlier about the struggle around the 10-hour day. Of course, we go on half a century or a bit less, and it's around the struggle for the eight-hour day. And this is an international struggle. It's taking place all around the world. So if you think about a 12-hour working day, at Marshall's Mill, they used to do two shifts. So once a fortnight, you'd have to work 24 hours straight, two shifts straight, so you could switch from a day to a night shift. Obviously, health and safety gone mad now. They don't allow you to work 24 hours straight, although I imagine quite a few people do. Okay, look, let's set the scene. 1890, the gas workers had formed a union, and it was part of this big wave of unionisation uh, called New Unionism, which swept uh, the UK from uh, around 1890, 1892, that, that sort of period, and really, really changed, um, changed everything in Leeds, basically set the scene for the emergence of of what would be the, the, the Labour Party later on. So in Leeds in 1890, when the gas workers strike happens, actually the union had won the eight-hour day the previous summer. Uh, but the council, and in particular the gas board, which was run by the council, had decided that they wanted to repeal the eight-hour day and they wanted to break the union at the same time. So they basically engineered a, a strike and then locked the workers out. 
Just a, a classic lockout. We, we absolutely know that they, that they engineered this and intended to provoke a strike because before that had happened, they'd already hired scabs to come in from Le London and Manchester. They'd hired scabs and organised trains for them to come up as well. There were two main gas works in, in Leeds. And so this is gas works. This, this would light the, the, the street lights, etc. And it was coal gas where you'd put coal in and through process you'd create gas. One of the gas works was at Meadow Lane, which is just behind Bridgewater Place. And there was a train station there. And so the, the trains had come in. Uh, in fact, there were two lots of, of scabs had come in. One of them were going into to come off of the train at Holbeck. And they were going to go up to the second gas works, which is up by uh, the New Wortley Gas Works, which is up by Amelie Gerrity, which we'll be visiting later on. They came to get off at Holbeck and they were greeted by a crowd of 15,000 people, strikers and their supporters. Uh, and they wouldn't let them off the train, so they came into Leeds City Station and they basically, uh, uh, they couldn't get in over at Meadow Lane. They had, a, they had a train station at Meadow Lane, so they got into the site. But uh, basically a huge crowd, again, 10, 15,000 people surrounded Meadow Lane. Uh, there was a bit of a fight, um, a, a bit of argy-bargy, uh, and some of the strikers climbed onto the wall of the gas works, talked to the, to the scabs and say, look, come out and you won't be harmed. And they persuaded them, and most of the scabs jumped over the wall and, and joined the crowd outside. And the story that the scabs had given was that they didn't know that this was a lockout. They thought these were new works, and they'd come up um, to, to start with new works, whether that was true or not, I don't know. But I would have said the same thing if I was being faced by 15,000 <laughs> angry strikers. So that's the Meadow Works Lane uh, uh, closed down. That's not restarting. But what about these scabs who come into Holbeck? Well, they've got brought into the city centre, and they came up here to the town hall. It's quite a grand town hall. We're stood here now with really tall pillars. It's got, a, you know, it's a nice... A, a nice ornate building. They were, the, the scabs were billeted here. They were actually billeted inside the main hall of the town hall. It's a really ornate grand building with a huge, uh, massive organ, really ornate organ, etc. Um, so the scene of those, like, you know, uh, 260 scabs billeted around, just sort of like lying about uh, uh, in, in that sort of opulence uh, would have been a sight to behold, really. So the, the scabs are here and they need to get them up the road to the, to, to the gas works. And so uh, the mayor thinks, oh, I can break this strike, but I need a bit of help. So he calls on the army and the police to come and get reinforcements. A hundred cavalry arrive from York. So a hundred cavalry on horses. They line up at the front of this parade. Behind them, there's 60 soldiers with rifles, carbines. Behind them, a large body of police. Behind them, these 260 scabs, and right at the back there, there is the, the Lord Mayor in his official carriage with a, seat, with a load of dignitaries. And they're going to make a real show of this. There's 30,000 lawyers surrounding them, and they are hostile. So this is a huge proportion of the population of Leeds at that, at that time have come out, and they're hostile, basically. Nonetheless, the, the cavalry start to move off, and they start to charge, and they scatter the crowd. So this ornate procession, they leave the front of this of the town hall proceed up up the hedgerows this street is called and then they're going to turn on to wellington street and go up to what is now armley gyratory uh, in order to get these uh, scabs in and, and to break the strike we're going to walk up there now and we'll return to this story in a moment So we've just walked up 
uh, Wellington Street, just gone underneath a railway bridge, and we're just by, by Armley Gyratory, which is a, a really big roundabout. It's quite noisy, and we've just come a little bit away to get a bit of quiet. This is where the new Wortley gas works uh, were based. This is where they were trying to get the scabs. Now, the strikers were, were led by Tom Maguire. I mentioned Tom Maguire earlier. He's a really interesting character. Uh, as I said, he was, a, he was a trusted leader. He'd led a successful building workers' strike the year before and got a pay rise. And he was a politico. He was a member of the Social Democratic Federation. He set up a branch of the Social Democratic Federation in Leeds, although they dissolved that and they joined a, a faction led by William Morris. It's a nice little um, acid communist moment for you there. <laughs> <laughs> the Socialist League led by William Morris. Anyway, Tom was a, was a strategist. And he'd realised that the procession, the procession of the soldiers and the Lord Mayor and the Scab, they had to come up this route if they, they had to go underneath this bridge if they were going to get to the, to the new Wortley gas works. So he thought, right, that's going to be our fort. And he got a, a whole load of strikers and supporters up there and they got a load of ammunition, basically. And they decided this is the point at which we will break the, the procession. So he got up there and start, they basically started hoying things down on the soldiers and on the police. I've got a contemporaneous report of the scene and they're always good. And it goes like this. The bridges were crowded with men and they'd massed piles of missiles. As they came within range, uh, the fire was directed with simply terrific force upon the soldiers and the police. The scene that ensued simply defies description. Bricks, stones, clinkers, iron belts sticks etc were hurled into the air to fall upon and among the black legs and their escorts there ends the the contemporaneous report but basically the the barrage of rocks broke the the line of the, of the soldiers at this point there were 15,000 loiners either behind or in front of of this procession of, of scabs and on being pelted from above the cavalry drew their swords and charged the armed military picked up their, their their guns to make as though they were going to fire. A huge battle ensues both from on top of the bridge and in the middle of the bridge. But because the cavalry charges, they get most of the black legs into, into the works. But the black legs are absolutely shook at this point. And so once again this negotiation ensues. People on the on the viaduct start shouting into the mill and persuade the strikers to come out. Say look if you come out we will, um, we, we will give you safe passage home and we will, give, we will pay your train fare back to Manchester or back to London, depending on where they were going. So the blacklegs come out and the strike goes on for another, another couple of days. But basically the gas board are defeated, the, the city council are, are defeated, their spirits are broken and they give in. You know, this, that day, <laughs> that tactic, it was in the most important battles in the struggle for the eight hour day, which is raging all around the world at that point you know in fact it's probably like the day in which an event in Leeds has the biggest impact on the world because the eight-hour day gives us the evening it gives us the weekend two things of which I'm very fond <laughs> um, uh, so you know it basically this is one of those once again it's one of those events uh, which doesn't get recognized as much as so the East End dock strike happens uh, uh, around about the, 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 the same time and that's much more associated with the British struggle for the eight-hour day but in fact you know this what happens in Leeds plays a very really big role in this unfortunately Tom Maguire dies a couple of years uh, years later uh, of ill health of consumption 
There's a plaque dedicated to him at the bus station, which we might get to, get to later. The Times, Saturday, July 5th, 1890. The Leeds gas strike is at an end. A settlement has been arranged on terms which the chairman of the gas committee, Mr Alderman Gilston, thinks honourable and satisfactory to both parties. That it is satisfactory to the men who have been on strike can be in no doubt whatever. Their triumph has been complete. They go back to work on their own conditions, having taught the Leeds Gas Committee a lesson which they and their fellow townsmen will not easily forget. When Thursday came, the authorities, if we may so term them, began to feel that it was useless to prolong the struggle. Public opinion was against them, and there was a loud and general demand that the reign of darkness should be ended in some way or another. The day, accordingly, was spent in negotiations, the result of which we announce this morning. There were difficulties in the way of the gas committee. They had made bargains with the new hands which they could neither repudiate nor carry out. The men who had been on strike refused to work with them or allow them to remain at work in any of the town establishments. But they had been engaged, some for three months certain, some for six months, some for twelve months. There was nothing for it but to make such terms as the new hands would agree to and as the old hands insisted upon. From first to last, it has been a bad business for Leeds. The gas men have not only been made aware of the commanding position which they occupy and which they may be trusted to use to good future account, but they have also been brought to commit themselves to an armed struggle with the authorities. And though they may have come off second best for the time, they have been nonetheless victorious in the end and have gained what they have been fighting for. The affair has been unfortunate at every point, troublesome while it lasted, discreditable in its conclusion, and worse perhaps of all, in the permanent lessons which it will enforce. So we've just come back into the city centre, we're just near Leeds City Market. We've just walked past a Harvey Nichols, but we don't talk about that. That doesn't fit the hard northern image we're trying to portray. But this little bit, just before, just as you get to the Leeds City Market, it's a more shishi uh, shopping area uh, shopping area of Leeds. We're quite close to uh, the Novara Northern HQ, which is in Leeds. I bet you didn't know that existed. And neither did I until today. Uh, we walked past a place which is quite special to me. Uh, uh, it, it's, it was a Hugo Boss, now it was a fat face, I think, which is, <laughs> that gives you a direction that Leeds is traveling in, I'm not sure. But before that, it was the Duchess of York pub, the Duchess as it was known, which is an absolutely legendary Leeds venue. It's quite a small pub, probably fitted 150, 200 people in at a maximum, but the, the number of legendary bands that played there on their way up is very long. Unfortunately, I can only remember one, Nirvana. I think Nirvana played in there to like 100 people, basically, before they, before they, they broke big. One of the people who used to put the gigs on there is a, a guy called John Keenan, who was a legendary Leeds promoter. He did um, these punk festivals back in, in the late 70s, and the last one was in 1980, in, in a place called the Queen, Queen's Hall. These were like legendary punk festivals with bands like uh, Gang of Four playing. In fact, the last one sort of turned into more, more, more goth and Leeds was a, was, a, was a center of like gothic punk, progressive punk it was known as, and then goth later on. 
Anyway, the Duchess closed down, uh, I can't quite remember, uh, the early 2000s. Uh, the last band to play there were Chumbawamba, I uh, went to that gig, and people were really pissed off that it was getting closed down and turned into a Hugo Boss. So at the end of the gig, people start sort of tearing the pub to pieces, going in the toilet, pulling off little bits of tile as a memento, etc. I got on my friend Gething's shoulders outside the pub and tried to pull the D off the Duchess at the front, and the bouncers came and chased us off. Uh, but um, it sorely missed. When it was a Hugo Boss, I always wanted to go back and graffiti it, saying, fuck the boss, the Duchess will rise again. So John <laughs> Keenan, John Keenan, when he was a leads is Tony Wilson, but, you know, unlike Tony Wilson who was a, a celebrated figure, John Keenan, right up until COVID was putting on, still putting on gigs, putting on bands in the back rooms of local pubs, so like 50 people, and that's, uh, that's what you call a trooper. So uh, apart from that little musical detour, we've basically told a history of, well, we told one history of Leeds. We've sort of told the history of South Leeds mainly, uh, that South Leeds, because it's industrial sort of area, there's lots of other stories we could have, told could have told a more 20th century story which might be about waves of immigration actually so that's more of a story of north leeds to be honest perhaps north and east leeds but there's been serial waves of of immigration into leeds and each wave has sort of displaced the previous one further up the hill further north basically and so i said leylands was the jewish area when it was really really poor and the jewish community in leeds has been displaced right up to the northern edge of leeds now which is a much richer area of course as that community's got uh, uh, more wealthy as, as it's been become more established and so forth so right up at the top of, of Leeds up in uh, Sheepscar and Moortown the next wave of immigration was Irish immigration nowhere near the same sort of scale as, as, as a city like Manchester or, or Liverpool but there were whole series of, of Irish pubs just to the just to the north and east of, of the Leeds, of the city centre I, I remember the White Stag <laughs> through the 90s and early 2000s was a place you could go, there'd be like an Irish session and you'd be absolutely guaranteed to be locked in there until the early morning. I'm quite glad it's closed really because I couldn't do that at my age. Um, but then the Irish, the, the next wave of immigration was Afro-Caribbean community uh, who settled in, uh, in the Chapeltown area of Leeds and sort of but this is sort of like pushing the rich further out through waves of immigration. The housing in Chapeltown really tall, really plush. And it became, you know, a classic sort of Afro-Caribbean sub-ghetto, if you want, a lot of racism, uh, especially in the, in the 80s, early 90s. And in fact, there was a riot in Chapel Town in 1981 as part of the cycle of, of inner city riots that happened and the same in 1984. We could have told that story gone up there, but it's a slightly different story, I think. You will notice, though, that, that, that we, have, we have talked a little bit about, about violence uh, and, you know... Um, Obviously, partly it's because we want to produce salacious content here on Navarra, but it's also because a lot of the story, a lot of the, the stories we were telling were about the 19th century and like industrial relations in the 19th century, they just were, and before that, were, they just were violent. You know, and part of that is because there was a lack of mediating institutions, if you like. It was just raw. We saw at Marshall's Mill some nine-year-old dragged out for some infringement and beaten unconscious with a strap, right? That's how discipline was imposed and that's how resistance happened at the same time. When we talked about the, the gas work strike, we, we, we said, you know, in the 1890s, that's when the period of new unionism happened and that's, that really changed things. That spread unionization away from like just skilled trades into, into what, were, what were called semi-skilled trades. Um, and, and, you know, that was the, the, the impetus from which, you know, you get things such as the Labour Party, etc., which become mediating institutions. Then you get a period in the mid-20th century in which 
you know, balance of power was shifted to some degree. Uh, we'd probably argue, in fact, that's probably been reversed a little bit now. And in fact, um, you know, a lot of those mediated institutions have been removed. A lot of the sort of democratic structures and institutions have been hollowed out and, and removed to a certain degree. Uh, I, I'm not saying we're back to a, to a period of, of impending riots, but if I was a betting man, I'd probably say now is probably not a bad time to think that, this may, that these sorts of things may happen. We saw the, the riot on Killer Bill in, in Bristol, for instance. There was quite a large Killer Bill demonstration in Leeds. And, you know, the situation is, um, you know, when people talk about, about riots or contentious politics, street politics, they, 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 people who study that, they say, look, that, that happens when... You have a large disgruntled cohort who have no access to the political system as it exists. Hey, I tell you what, that's the political system we have now. Post-Corbynism, every single political party is basically predicated on denying the experience of basically everybody under 40, let alone representing their interests. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the perfect sort of breeding grounds for this sort of contentious politics. Plus, you have a lot of young people who have got a lot of energy, who've been locked up, etc. You know, perhaps, perhaps that will happen, you know, perhaps perhaps it will go we'll go a different path perhaps we'll be able to establish some more democratic structures once again in, in which more people will be able to have some sort of say over over the way that um that leads goes the way leads developed uh but i think that looking back at all of that history it reminds us of a few things it reminds us that classes exist that not everybody has the same interests that people have different perhaps antagonistic interests uh, and that, in fact, the way a city develops, the way a city goes, that's not based on who has the most persuasive arguments. That may play a part in it. It's based on who has the power, who has the power. And so far, that's been the people with the money. That's what developer-led development means. They're the ones whose needs get met. And the people of Leeds, their needs are, are sidestepped. Uh, you know, perhaps we have to find ways and perhaps draw in inspiration from that history of Leeds to find ways in which we can alter that balance of power and decide a different path for the city. And that concludes our virtual walk around the fine city of Leeds. I hope you enjoyed this unusual episode as much as we enjoyed getting out on the streets to make it, so much so that I kind of fancy making another one. So where should Navarra FM go next? You can get in touch. Let us know what town or city you think is worthy of a red plaque tour like this one. Maybe tip us off to the smartest local guides and I will go and check it out. Thanks again to Keir Milburn for sharing his people's history with us and catch more from Keir and the gang on the next episode of ACFM. Thanks also to James Butler and Craig Gent for providing additional voices and to the following Leeds bands for the tunes. Delta 5, Gang of Four, The Mekons, Chumbawamba and Soft Cell. And the red flag was sung by Rufus John as recorded for Lansbury's Labour Weekly in 
This year marks 10 years since we first started Navara FM and what would become Navara Media. We've come a long way since then, and whether you're new to Navara or have been tuning in for years, we want to say thank you for being a part of that journey, and we hope we've been a part of your political journey too. But here is the thing. Unlike legacy media outlets, we're funded almost entirely by people like you. That's why, as our plans for the next decade get more and more ambitious, so must our fundraising targets. And it's our supporters who've got us to where we are today. Now we need you to help us boost our donations by 8,000 a month. All we're asking is for one hour of your wage each month. Head to novaramedia.com support, select the amount you'd like to donate and click go. If you're already a Navara supporter, first of all, thank you. And if you can afford to increase your donation by just a couple of quid a month, it really makes all the difference. If the last decade has taught us anything, it's that no one else is going to create the media we need for us. We're in this for the long haul. We hope you are too.